So for you, some of you are new, we've been working our way through Romans 9. We're about uh, maybe one-third of the way through. Uh, Ty and I have been back and forth between chapters. Uh, Ty finished Romans 8. In chapter 9 here, Paul makes the transition. 9, 10, and 11 go together, and we'll see that as we, as we uh, work our way through those over the next few months. Uh, the beginning of chapter 9, Paul focuses back on the Jews, uh, specifically his passion for the Jewish people, those uh, he calls his brethren. He has a longing for them. And he lists a, a lot of things here in the first, and we won't take time to look at them, uh, but he has a great sorrow because they have uh, rejected Christ uh, from our study in the New Testament. You've seen that. But then he lists seven or eight things that God gave them. They were a part of the adoption. They were the glory, the covenants. They were given all these wonderful promises and all these uh, wonderful benefits, and yet they still rejected God. And um, Paul says here um, that actually Christ came through the Jews. That was the blessing that they had. Of course, we know that. And then when he gets uh, in verses 6 through um, 13 here, he talks about Israel's rejection and God's purpose, that Israel has, has rejected God, they've turned away, and we get into these deep waters, really, of God's sovereignty, God's purpose, God's eternal plan, and uh, quite frankly, can be very overwhelming to us at times. And so we're working our way through uh, Romans uh, 9 here. Uh, last week, we left off around verse 10. Uh, would somebody want to read, uh, Ty, would you or Bryce want to read 10 through 18? One of you, please. Don't make me call on one of you, so. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, 10 through 18. stand amazed at these, um, at the words of Paul. Can you only imagine when that letter was given to the Roman church, probably meeting in a house, and they're reading through this for the first time, and they hear this. I mean, it had to be an amazing statement to them. Uh, many of them Jews, many of them Romans, uh, a clear, clear 
testimony of God's sovereign grace, a clear testimony of God, his sovereignty. Um, and uh, so, uh, I, again, I, I'm just even hearing that again. Um, uh, I'm just amazed at, at God's uh, purpose. So Paul, remember, we, we, didn't, we won't have time to look at it, but and earlier in chapter 9, Paul says the patriarchs and Abraham, you remember that God, God takes Abraham. He doesn't choose Abraham's brothers. He picks Abraham out. And so we're seeing God's choice uh, down through the ages. Of all the people, he picks out Abraham. And then from Abraham, Abraham has actually a bunch of sons, but uh, Isaac and Ishmael we're familiar with. There's a, another lady married later on in life that he has at least six sons with. But the blessing doesn't go to Ishmael, who was the oldest. He was uh, born of, of uh, Hagar, the handmaid, but it goes through Isaac. And, and so Paul makes this argument that God, maybe it would have seemed reasonable that it went through Ishmael, but it didn't. It goes through Isaac. And then this is where we get in this morning. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob. And the blessing doesn't go to the oldest. The blessing goes to the youngest. And, of course, from Jacob comes what we get the 12 tribes of Israel. And eventually Jesus Christ comes through the tribe of Judah. But we see God's eternal purpose here. And, and there's a lot here uh, in these next couple verses that we want to look at. Um, Esau becomes an Edomite. And um, I, I can tell you this, if you, uh, why, why Esau wasn't a Jew, I don't know. Uh, because he had this exactly the same blood type as, as his brother. But for some reason, uh, God brings the blessing through Jacob and then on down. Uh, it's interesting, I thought about it this week, what, what does Esau and all his descendants eventually become? I know they're Edomites, but eventually they become what? Gentiles, right? They're Gentiles, and so what happens at the end, when we're going to look here, the Gentiles are called back into the kingdom of God. Uh, it's very interesting how, how the circle works here. So, by the way, for those that are not familiar with me teaching, or Ty, if you have a question, either interrupt or raise your hand or whatever, uh, and, and, uh, and we'll be glad to try to answer that. So Paul narrows down even more. He says, Isaac had these two sons, his wife Rebecca, uh, their names in verse 12, Jacob and Esau. And the promise of God, you can see it's getting more narrow here. Uh, the phrase, and not only this, uh, in there in verse 10, it, that refers back to Isaac and Ishmael. Uh, there was uh, those two and uh, Ishmael was the son, as I said, of Sarah's handmaiden, and, and that didn't go well uh, after uh, he was born. Uh, now in verse 11, there's nothing here. Notice what it says. There's nothing here about Jacob or Esau. For the children not yet born, having done neither good nor evil for the purpose of God, according to election, might stand not of works but of him who calls. So Paul's making this argument all through Romans that it's not of works, right? Not of works, not of works. It's, 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 uh, it, it is all of God's grace. It's the, uh, the just shall live by faith. He brings that up early on in Romans chapter 2. And so, he's, and, and so here we get to Paul, and he's making this argument again. God's choice is not according to what they have done or what they have done. Um, 
have not done. Uh, there's nothing in Jacob or Esau uh, that uh, brings them to Christ. It's interesting, and we won't take time to look at it. If you look at Genesis 25, verse 4, and I didn't realize this until this week, both of them are a result of God's, of an answered prayer. And so uh, Abraham and Sarah praying there, or excuse me, Rachel, uh, Ra uh, Rahab, is, or, no, not Rahab, uh, Rachel's praying, and the sons are born. And so they're both answers to prayer. Uh, interesting in God's sovereignty how that works out uh, because we'll see here uh, that there's not um, the same. So he says, uh, this is the wonderful doctrine of election or sovereign grace or God's choice. Uh, it's about uh, really as plain as it can be taught anywhere in the scriptures here. Uh, notice in verse 11, these two phrases, not yet born and having done no evil. They weren't even born yet, and God makes this sovereign choice. Jacob, have I, I'm going to love, and Esau, am I going to hate? And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then notice also at the end of uh, verse 11, he says here, uh, not of works, but of him who calls. And so... Um, it is, uh, again, he goes back, uh, they weren't born yet, they've done neither good nor evil, it's not of works, and there's no personal merit in it at all. Uh, again, this, this has to be one of the greatest mysteries of, of the doctrine of the church, uh, how God and his sovereignty through the ages before, uh, Revelation tells us, before Christ Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. And so when you try to think about that, it almost makes your head explode. Uh, and think about the magnitude of God's sovereignty here. But notice he says, uh, what's the phrase that, that is important? That according to election might stand. God's purpose was all about why he did this. It was for God's purpose. Uh, God made the sovereign electing choice. Uh, purpose of God according to election might stand. And so I would say if there's any doubt about this teaching about God's sovereign grace, notice the last two thoughts um, at the end of verse um, 11 there. Not of works, but of him who calls. So he emphasizes it again. He, he makes this emphasis. Not of works, but of him who calls. Um, Jacob and Esau were both born in sin. They were both born under the wrath of God. Um, they were fallen uh, sons of God. If you look back at Romans 3, and if, again, if you're not familiar, if you haven't been in this class for a long time, Paul's been building this case from day one about not of works, not of works, but of, of grace. In Romans 3, he makes this amazing statement, which is actually a quote from the Old Testament he says here, um, what shall, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jew and Greek that they are all under sin. It is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understand, none that seek after God. All have turned aside and, and together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. So Jacob and Esau certainly fell into this category. And they were both sinners. For some reason, in God's purpose to please himself, he picks out this 
um, this man called Jacob and not, not his brother. Um, uh, this is really the key point uh, that Paul wants to make here. Um, the, uh, the struggle here uh, of the doctrine of election uh, is really, this, this is where it falls in, is does God have the right to choose who he wants to choose? And, of course, the answer is yes. And uh, we will see that pass, uh, move on here. Left to themselves, where would both men have ended up? Left to themselves, where would they have ended up? According to Romans 3. They would have went, ended up in the same place, right? In eternal hell. Left to themselves, they would have both been in the same place. So um, this is uh, according to Romans 5.12, uh, wherefore by one man's sin entered the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men because all have sinned or all have become sinners. They were all the same. They were both the same. Uh, they were both born dead in trespasses and sin. Uh, they were both born, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, children of wrath. They both fell under God's condemnation. Why would God elect one and not the other? Why would he pick one and not the other? Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But why? But here's our choice. Why would he pick one? They're, they're twins, having done neither good nor evil, right? That his purpose may stand, right? It ple- Go ahead. stand amazed, don't we, that, uh, that God, we'll talk about what Debbie said here in a minute, um, it was all his wise and sovereign choice, um, when we, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to verses 19 and 20, um, however, um, would God be unjust if he didn't elect either one, no, he wouldn't have been, right? We, we all deserved wrath. We were all under God's wrath, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We were all dead in trespasses and sin. We, there was none righteous, no, not one. And so when we see this, we again, we stand amazed that God would even pick one or the other. Um, they were both sinners. Uh, neither man uh, deserved mercy. Um, and so, uh, again, the... Most of the objection to the doctrine of election uh, centers around really the fact it's not fair. You hear that uh, a lot. It's not fair. And uh, again, when you say something like that, you're on dangerous ground, right? Because you're saying to God, uh, by the way, um, that's not fair. Uh, But I've heard that uh, come up so many times. Uh, Really, those thoughts come from a poor understanding of scripture and of sin. If you understand what Paul says, that there's none righteous, when, and, and you turn around and your argument is it's not fair, you have a poor understanding of the overall view of the depravity of man and uh, human uh, will. Um, 
it's really, uh, it's really, uh, we just really need to be careful about um, questioning God's sovereignty and his electing grace. Uh, why would God save anyone is again what we, what we talked about. Ephesians 1, 5 gives us a little bit of the answer. In Ephesians 1, uh, Paul says, having predestinated us to the adoption of the Son by Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will, because he wanted to. And uh, again, I, do I understand this? No, not completely, not even a little bit in the big picture. But it was God, because he wanted to, he was pleasing himself, which he has all the right to do. Um, in Rome, Tom? talk about that but it is there's some difficult things here um, look at the last part of verse 11 it says not of works but of him who calls now think of what we've previously studied what what verse should come to mind when you, you you see Paul building his case what verse comes to mind that we've previously studied of not, not of works but of him who calls what is it yeah, turn back to Romans chapter 8, just turn back a, a page, and, and you see Paul, this, this, this master, as it were, uh, he, he, it should take us right back to Romans 8.30, uh, when Paul says this, well, let me start verse 29, for whom, uh, by the way, just a point here uh, for those who can't, uh, that want to say, God's choice was based on four dollars. Notice the word there, whom, not what he knew, whom he knew. This is personal. Whom God knew, he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn about many brethren. Now look at Paul's argument here. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. You see how Paul goes back and he picks up chapter 8 and he brings it back to chapter 9. He says it's not of those that your will, but it's of those who are called. And then notice the chain here. Those he called, who he, who he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justifies or declares righteous. And whom he justifies, he glorifies. They will be glorified at, at one day. And so we see God's sovereign grace, again, working for his good pleasure and for uh, his good Hendrickson, in his commentary, makes this statement. The question is often asked, how was it possible for a loving God to ordain certain individuals to everlasting punishment? A more logical question would be, how is it possible for God, whose righteous demands that sin be punished, to ordain some individuals to everlasting life and glory? And, and I think that's the question we ask. What, and again, we're having a communion service this morning, and one of the, this is a perfect 
mourning for this. It should draw us back to the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. All of this is possible because Christ shed his blood for, uh, for our sins. And so when we, when we, we say that, uh, that God loved one and hated another, it is all comes down to the substitutionary death uh, of Jesus Christ. God chose to save some. Thank God for his mercy and grace. I don't know if this is probably a crude example. If you take two circles, and when you're born, the whole world, the whole world is in this, in this circle, according to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Romans 3. We are all in this circle. How do we get into this? If this is if this is the saved, how do we get into that circle? How do we get there? By faith through Jesus, right? But according to God's word, we can't get there on our own. Not of works, right? It's not of works. We can't move from here to here on our own. We can only move from there, from here to there, by God's sovereign grace. And that's why when we talk about uh, salvation, regeneration or new birth always has to proceed. Uh, re- re- regeneration precedes faith. You can't even believe until you're born again. You cannot, you cannot be born again until God has quickened you alive and brought you. So we would all be in. We're all unrighteous. We're all born in here. The only way we get in here, by the way, is God unjust if he leaves us all here? No, he's still a holy, righteous God. Is he unjust if he takes some and moves them to here? No, he's merciful. He's a merciful God. And so, so much for that illustration. Um, any, any questions or thoughts here? Mike? Some uh, the the Armenian side or they would say that he foreknew God looked out through history and he saw that Mike would make a decision someday for Christ and therefore based on Mike's Mike's making that decision he elected you based on his foreknowledge and that's not at all what it means the word better translated there would be for love who God for love he predestined. It has nothing to do with him looking down through time and seeing what choice you're going to make. It has to do with the fact that he is sovereign. And, and really, he backs that up here in chapter 9, right? Jacob have I loved, uh, Esau have I hated. Um, right, yeah, and again, the word, it's always not, it's, if, if you say to your, and I know we're getting off track, but if it's based on, God's foreknowledge, then he would say, he would have written for uh, what he knew, right? But he says for whom he knew. It's personal. He knew you personally. That's who he predestined. Not what he knew about you, but whom he, what he knew you personally. He called you, just like Esau and Jacob. 
called one and not the other. Yes, Tim. probably, from what I understand, more, if it's, I'm saying this in quotations, more unregenerate than his other, than his other family, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand it. Why do you believe, believe me, if you think it's of yourself, you're kidding yourself. It's all of sovereign grace. And yeah, Tim, we're standing in a cemetery, there it is. My, my grandmother, father's sister's laying next on her deathbed. I don't want nothing to do with the gospel. My grandfather looks up and says, it's glorious. Both, both born in unregenerate homes. Yep. Um, let's look at verse 13 here. Uh, verse 12, it says, uh, he said unto her, the older shall serve the younger as it is written, Jacob, of I love Esau, as I hate it. I wanted to make some comments about hated, and I uh, let me just make those here. Uh, this is a quotation from Malachi chapter 1, verse 3. Um, we won't take time to look at that, but turn back to Genesis 50 a minute. There's a lot of uh, gymnastics about this word hatred. Genesis 50. Here's, here's how the word is translated in Genesis 50. I think this will be helpful for us. Uh, verse 15. This is the story of Jacob. Um, this is uh, Joseph or excuse me, Joseph, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil that we did to him. That's the same word. Their brothers figured that jo Joseph was going to hate them because they tried to kill him, right? They sold him into slavery. That's the exact same word there hate, uh, that's used of Esau and Jacob. Uh, it's also in the New Testament, uh, if you turn to John chapter 15, uh, here's the New Testament word, John 15, uh, verse 23, he says, he who hates me hates my father also. So what do you do with the word hate? I don't know, but it looks to me pretty clear. God loved one. Not only did he not, he wasn't neutral to the other, but he was, he hated the other. He turned away from the other towards Jacob. And um, you can make up with as much as you want there. Um, I, Debbie mentioned, uh, my sister mentioned, why would he save one? We, I, I, I'm sure you've all read Spurgeon's quote after he, spoke on 
Romans 9, 13, and the lady came up to him and said, I have a problem with, with the fact that God would hate Esau. And he said to her, I have a problem, but it's that God would love Jacob. Um, and so I think that's a great quote to remember. Why would God not hate everybody? We are all rebellious, fallen sons of Adam and sinners. Um, Again, this great mystery goes back to Romans 8, 28 and 29, what we just talked about, uh, and it's God's purpose. And the final analysis, the reason um, why some people are accepted and others are rejected is that God wills it. Uh, and that, that's really the final, um, final, the finality of it. In verses 14 and 15, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. Right? If you think God's unrighteous, you've got the problem, not God. May uh, This phrase, uh, we've seen this phrase before. This is Paul um, as, as the, putting on, again, his lawyer hat. Uh, and he says, uh, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 15, he's, or verse 5, I, just, I think he's, he uses this phrase, uh, several times in Romans, but in, in verses chapter 3, uh, let me see, chapter 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, shall we say, what shall we say then? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? And in the verse 6, certainly not, certainly not. That's the exact same phrase he's used, I think, four or five times he uses it in Romans 6, 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Heaven forbid, no. And so when Paul is reading this letter, or they're reading this letter in this assembly in the Roman church, and they get to this after they hear about Jacob and Esau, and, they, and, they, and Paul anticipating what some may say, and he says to themselves, there is none, is God unrighteous? Certainly not, absolutely not is God unrighteous. Um, he anticipates the objection here, uh, and uh, it's really, uh, is he unrighteous because he loved Jacob and hated Esau? In fact, <laughs> what's the bigger problem? If, if God's unjust, we got a bigger problem, right? <laughs> we, we wouldn't be arguing about election. If, God, if, if there was an injustice or unjust, if God was unjust, uh, we would have a bigger problem uh, here. Uh, but Paul says, certainly not, and uh, you can also, some translations uh, translate that, may it never be, uh, I think the, the Greek is megenete, and it's uh, may it never be, uh, may it never be said. Um, think about, as I said, if, if there was unrighteousness with God, uh, we would have bigger issues here. And in verse 15, uh, Paul, in verse 15, he quotes from uh, Exodus chapter 33, He's, uh, he goes back and he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And so uh, going back to the Old Testament, Paul says uh, God is completely just. There's no injustice in God. And by the way, let's go back to the Old Testament, Jews, and I'll remind you that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom." Uh, I will have mercy. Um, 
that this quote is to reinforce his point that fairness and, and right of God to do as he pleases. Uh, the words uh, mercy and compassion there, I think they're synonymous. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Uh, I think you see those as the same word or the same idea. Um, you can see Paul, again, standing in the courtroom, uh, someone saying, why would you say or teach this type of doctrine? Why would you teach this, Paul? And Paul would simply say that God said to Moses, uh, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so our response is we have to accept it. It's, be, it's what God has taught in his holy word. Uh, whether it's Abraham, think about this. Let's go back where we started. Whether it's Abraham or his brothers, whether it is Isaac and not Ishmael or, or, or the sons of uh, Cuthera, the six sons, gone, all lost. They weren't called. Why it was Jacob and Esau, uh, again, um, is there unrighteousness with God? No, no, uh, there can't be. Uh, and Paul would say, God forbid. God forbid if that's our conclusion, or uh, may it never be said. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Um, you can hear, as it were, Paul thinking um, to himself, you, you may not like my teaching on sovereign elect and grace, but here's what God says. So Paul's making a case not for himself, but he's going back to the Old Testament. It says, here's what God said in the past. Here's what God said that he would do. And so in verse 16, any questions or thoughts? if we think we have to justify God, right? We're, we're pretty arrogant, in fact. That, this is why I said just a few minutes ago, um, Ty's, Ty's had this diagram before. By the way, we'll talk about this later. God's not the author of sin. Um, but in salvation... Regeneration has to precede faith. Okay, all right. And then that produces works. If, if regeneration, if regeneration is, if faith produces regeneration, what does faith become? Faith becomes a work, right? And so it's imperative. Pete, you're right. We're born dead in trespasses and sin. Dead men can't do anything until they're regenerated, until they're made alive. Then they can believe, and of course, repentance goes with that. And then as a, as a result of that, then they do good works. 
Um, they, I think they call that the order of salvation. All right. Um, verse 16 here. So then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. For the scripture says uh, in verse 17, to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be declared in all the earth. Ty, I don't think I'm going to get done next week. So <laughs> figure two more weeks here uh, before we get done. Uh, again, um, the will and the run in verse 16 are just another way of saying desire or effort. It's not of him who desires. It's not of him who desires or of him who tries real hard effort, but it's God that shows mercy. And again, Paul's just restating this in a different way. Uh, those things don't matter. What matters is that God shows mercy. It's not the running. It's not the effort. It's not even the desire. There is none that seeks after God. Until we understand that, until we get that in our theology, how, how depraved we are, there is none that seeks after God we will get away with this foolishness of seeker-sensitive churches uh, because uh, it, it's, it's really uh, uh, not scriptural. Um, those things don't matter. Turn back to John chapter 1 with me, and here's what John says in a different way, but the same thought. Not of him who runs or him who wills. In John chapter 1, 12 and 13, but as many as received him, to them he gave the power or the right to become the children of God to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but nor the will of man, but of God. How did you become born again? Did you run hard? Did you desire God? No. Because not of blood, you weren't born into it, your family. If that was the case... My grandfather, uh, all his siblings, all seven of them would have been believers. But out of that, maybe one was. That's it. So it wasn't of blood, Jacob and Esau. It's nor the will of the flesh. It's not if we run or desire, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, um, again, Paul is just building his case here. One of these verses goes like this and the song that we often sing uh, his mercy is more uh, what riches of kindness he lavished on us his blood was the payment his life was the cost we stand neath a debt we could never repay our sins there are many his mercy are more so um, that's really the gospel isn't it that's the gospel of Jesus Christ we'll see when we get to verse chapter 10 and, and we saw this in chapter uh, 9, there, we should have a great desire to see the lost come to Christ. It should, be, uh, it should be a passion of ours. It was a passion of Paul's. And when we get to chapter 10, Todd's going to teach on this, but how do they hear without a preacher? It's imperative, even that we have become believers, that the gospel, the free offer of the gospel goes out. Uh, I don't know how all that works together, uh, but it is certainly... Uh, part of this. And then in verse 17, we'll just look at that. Paul goes back to the Old Testament example from Exodus chapter 9. Uh, be, notice very carefully here, uh, 
he uses this Old Testament example of Pharaoh, not as, not, he uses Pharaoh not as an example of God showing great mercy, but of God not showing any mercy at all to Pharaoh. In fact, Pharaoh was not an example of God's mercy, but he's an example of God's power. If you look back at verse 17 again, notice what he says, that for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, not mercy, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Well, I think we'll stop there. Uh, we've got a couple of minutes left. Any closing comments? I know there's a lot here. Um, we have I have to make a decision as a teacher how deep or how not to go and Part of it has to do with my ability or inability, so uh, bear with me. I, uh, I told Chris, uh, we'll talk about this next week. I found a quote this week from a man named uh, A.B. Simpson, and he was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance. And I think we'll, this is a good uh, quote for us to, to close on. Uh, it reads like this. Redemption is a sacred temple. On the front of it we read, Whosoever will may come, but we enter, we find inscribed on the walls, chosen before the foundation of the world. And so that's the gospel, right? Go out, preach the gospel to all the world. Whosoever will, we proclaim that. But in the bottom line, chosen before the foundation of the world. So thank you for your patience. If you have any questions or thoughts, see me afterwards.